few months ago in our house, um, the baby bouncer on the kitchen door uh, knocked off a picture which fell to the floor. And we thought, goodness, that's slightly precarious, a bit unsafe. We should do something about that. Of course, the sensible thing would have been to move the picture, but we didn't. And so Wednesday of this week, Barney and I spent three and a half hours at the John Radcliffe having his head glued up where the picture had fallen off because the baby bouncer had knocked it. Um, He's fine now. You can have a look, if you like, over tea and coffee. Um, But it turns out that when a little picture hits the head of a small child, then pain and blood quickly follow afterwards. Of course, what ought to have happened is that we moved the picture a few months ago when we had the warning that it could have been dangerous. We should have changed our decor uh, in in light of uh, what happened. We didn't. And do you remember, Joel says, look back at this warning Look back at chapter 1. Look back at the judgment there and learn the lessons for the future. Don't be caught by surprise. Learn the lessons for what's to come. Do you remember the judgment then? Mountain 1, we called it. The locusts had come and devoured all the crops and, and we had seen that as a judgment from God. And yet it paled into insignificance compared to the judgment, the second mountain that was to come. And so we were to return to the Lord. Do you remember we'd wandered off and he said, rend your hearts to the Lord. Rend your hearts. Return to him because he's firstly, verse 13 of chapter 2, he said he was gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's just the kind of God who forgives. And we said, return to him, verse 17, because of his glory, because he loves to act in, in light of who he is and so that the nations will see how amazing he is. And that was where we left it last time. We had looked back at that first mountain, we'd looked ahead to the second, and we had gone to the Lord to return to him. This week we're going to finish Joel. We're going to see the Lord's response to that petition that we had at the end of last week. We'll see that he does listen to his people. And just as there were two mountains back then, the one before and the one to come, I think there are two responses uh, from the Lord as well. So I think chapter 2, verse 18 to 27 looks back to mountain 1, and that's the Lord's response to there and then. And then the rest of Joel, so 2, 28 and onwards, looks ahead to that second mountain to come. But he's still saying, learn the lessons of the past so you know how to live in the future. You know what's coming. You need to forgive me. We're going to have to use broad brushstrokes. It's a long passage. We've seen that. You need to forgive me as well for the alliteration that I've come up with, which hopefully will stick in your mind. We're going to see the Lord's response, and we're going to see that he responds in jealousy, in justice, and in generosity. <laughs> hopefully there are no children in the room so that I can... No, that's fine. Just think of a just sound. Hopefully it will stick in your mind. So the Lord responds, firstly then, in jealousy. And of course, jealousy is not always wrong. Very often jealousy is wrong. Very often it's simply a window into the lack of contentment in our hearts as we see what other people have and we want it for ourselves. But jealousy is not always wrong. So imagine you are a small child and imagine your family gets a new dog And after week one, all your parents can talk about is this dog taking it for walks and giving it snuggles and attention and treats and bones and stroking it. And 
And week two, it's more and more of the same. All they want to do is spend time with this new dog. And you are old news. It is right for you to be jealous. Jealous of your parents' misplaced affection. That kind of jealousy is right. While so it is with the Lord, he is rightly jealous and he is protective of his people, whom he loves, and of their welfare when things go wrong. So look at 2 verse 18. I take it this initial uh, locus incident. Verse 18, he says, And the Lord was jealous for his land and took pity on his people. Or looking ahead in uh, chapter 3 and verse 2 to 6. The Lord seems to have a particular issue in mind in these verses. Let me read them to you again. He says, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will put them on trial. Why? Well, for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes, they sold girls for wine to drink. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me back for something I've done? If you're paying me back, I will swiftly and speedily return on your own heads what you've done. For you took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. You sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks, that you might send them far from their homeland. So it's a courtroom scene. And the files, the exhibits that the Lord is leafing through, is how they have treated his people. How they've treated his children even. He is a jealous God. Quite, quite rightly, the papers, regardless of their focus or their bias, are always united and up in arms when children are abused. You probably saw it this week, sadly, where, where our, our local news made its way into the national news. Thirteen men in custody over... It's child trafficking, sex abuse, that kind of stuff. It's a horrible story. And whatever the abuse, when children are involved, people are rightly angered, disgusted. Well, how much more the God of the universe? Look at verses 3 and 4. Tyre, Sidon, Felicia, they were well known for trading. All kinds of goods all kinds of commodities, including people, and they grew wealthy through it. But their crime against this nation is a crime against the God who made the universe. There you see there in verse 2, it's his inheritance. Notice again that the my word repeated what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. They scattered my people among the nations, divided up my land, cast lots for my people. It's a a personal judgment the Lord comes with. He is jealous for the sake of his people, the people whom he had rescued from Egypt and given them freedom and redemption in the land, united them together. And what's happened? Well, the nations have come and undone it all. They're no longer free, they're sold into slavery. They're no longer united in the land, they're scattered around the world. And so notice the focus of judgment in this bit, in chapter 3, has moved away. Last week it was upon his people, this week it's the nations. And it's for how they've treated his people. They've undone his work and they will answer for that. 
They're his people. And if you make them suffer, then you will answer to him. You get similar things in the New Testament as well. Just one example for you, where we meet Saul, the great church persecutor, on the road to Damascus. And he meets Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Does Jesus say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my people? No, he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? When his church is persecuted, then he is offended. It's one of the encouragements that I found particularly in, in Matthew 9 and 10, these last series we've looked at. Despite it being hard to be a Christian on a Monday, the Lord says, Remember, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside the will of your father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Your, your colleagues shun you. Your teammates mock you. And yet God is not removed from that suffering. I think it should be a, a truth that's precious to us. It can be hard to be Christians. We can find it hard. But particularly those around the world today in Nigeria, Egypt, India, Pakistan, Iran, Saudi Arabia, wherever it might be. Those who have lost family and friends, those who have lost their jobs, their livelihoods because of Christ. So they can take courage in the fact that when God's people suffer, then he suffers. That he is a jealous God. And it's a truth too that should warn those who persecute God's people. Because it's not just his people who are being persecuted. So he responds in jealousy. Secondly, he responds in justice. And I take it that chapter 3 of Joel basically spring out of chapter 2, verse 31 and 32. So I'm going to pick it up for you at 2, verse 30 and read that again. The Lord says, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From Mount Zion and Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. So that bit there in chapter 2, I think if you like, is the wide-angled lens. We see it all. And chapter 3, it fits into those two verses there. Chapter 3 is the details for us. He colours it in for us. That second mountain, the mountain to come. And as we've said, it's a courtroom scene. All of the worlds in the dock. Did you spot that as it was read for us? The nations are mentioned again and again and again. Verse 2, I will gather all nations. Verse 9, proclaim this among the nations. Verse 11, come quickly all you nations from every side. Verse 12, let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. They're called to this valley for judgment. Verse 14, the multitudes are called to the valley of decision. The valley of decision, the valley of Jehoshaphat, it's the same thing, it's the same place. It means the Lord judges. And yet in our mindset, there's something missing, I think, from the courtroom scene. Because there's no jury. There is no jury. 
God himself is to be the judge. There's to be no miscarriage of justice, no sweet-talking lawyers who can manipulate the system. There's no risk of a payoff. The one true God of justice will judge the entire world. Every nation, every tribe, every language, every tongue, every skin colour, every background, every ethnic group gathers to be judged by their creator. It's terrifying. Verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations, from every side and assemble there. Bring down your warriors, Lord. Let the nations be roused. Let them advance into the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the nations on every side. Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the winepress is full, and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. It's sobering. It's awesome. It's inevitable. And yet what Joel says here is then scooped up and developed as we get further on in the Bible. So, I'm going to read you a bit from Revelation 14. John is given this glimpse through the curtain of final judgment. I'm going to read it. I want you to look, though, at Joel 3, verse 13, as I read it to you. If you're a note-taker, it's Revelation 14, verse 18 to 20. Let me read that. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press. We don't like listening to words of God's judgment, do we? Of, of hell, of God's justice in this way. It makes us feel very uncomfortable. And so it should. The kind of thing we're tempted to airbrush out, but we must not. The story is told of Francis and Edith Schaefer in their Switzerland home in Labrie. After dinner one night, the conversation ranged over profound theological topics. And someone suddenly asked Dr. Schaefer, what will happen to those who have never heard of Christ? And everyone around the dinner table was waiting for some profound theological answer, some weighty intellectual response. And none came. Schaefer simply bowed his head and he wept. Talk of justice makes us feel uncomfortable. And while it ought. But in the midst of that, there is hope. In the midst of Joel, we have glimpses of light. We have hope that we can cling to. So look again at verse 16. And look at the second half there. But the Lord will be a refuge for his people. A stronghold for the people of Israel. He responds in jealousy, in justice but also in generosity. 
And I want to pick up on just two aspects as we think about generosity from the Lord. The first is one that we mustn't miss in chapter 2, verse 28 to 32. Um, As it was read, you might think, I recognise those verses, they're from Acts chapter 2. You might remember that at Pentecost. God pours out his spirit on his people. And these, these verses, these words, are highlighted for us. And why is that? I think lots of reasons, but in part, it's because as the spirit is poured out, we are all prophets. This is an era of, of proclamation. To the time of speaking, we speak of the final judgment to come, the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We, we speak of the gospel and of finding refuge in Christ. You see that working out in Acts. You see the spirit being poured out and people speaking and the gospel going out and the kingdom growing and people being rescued. In fact, you see it in Romans 10 as well. Paul picks up uh, verse 32. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And Paul continues, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in and how they can believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So Paul sees these words as applying to to him and his ministry as he speaks. Paul's job was to help people avoid final judgment, to, to help them find refuge in Christ, to show them God's rescue plan in Jesus. So firstly, he's generous because he sends people to to tell folk about the judgment to come. Like Paul, like us, as we we chat at the school gates, as we speak to people in the lab or in the office or on our team or with family or friends or neighbours or colleagues or whoever it is. We're sent like prophets to tell people about Jesus. So there's generosity there. But the second generosity, of course, is the fact that the Lord comes to rescue as well. It's not just a message about rescue, but he does rescue. The Lord will be a refuge for his people. Look at verse 17 with me. Last, last bit of uh, page 915. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk and all the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house and will water the valley of Acacias. But Egypt will be desolate. Edom, a desert waste, because of violence done to the people of Judah, in whose land they shed innocent blood. Judah will be inhabited forever and Jerusalem through all generations. Shall I leave their innocent blood unpunished? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. There's salvation, there's safety, security for the people of God. There's a very helpful um, Bible overview that I'm sure a number of you will be familiar with. A way of looking at the Bible from the big picture to see what's going on, to see God's plan of salvation for his people going through the pages. And what it does is it looks at three promises to a man called Abraham. And it shows how each of those promises is picked up and carried on and developed. Um, I'm going to look at each of them uh, with you now, just as we look at these last few verses. So God's people, and God's place, and God's blessing, or, or his relationship with his people. 
his closeness with them. So God's people and God's place and God's blessing. It's just striking, I think, how those three come out so clearly, so vividly, as we look at these verses. Joel is there, he's, he's breathless, he's excited, he's got his binoculars in his hand. He's looking ahead to what's to come. He's recounting for the Lord's people what's in store for those who call on his name. So God's people, firstly, well, they're going to be safe. At verse 16 and 17, he will be their refuge, he will be their stronghold. And verse 20 as well, you see that it's going to be eternally inhabited. God's people are there forever. This is talking about something to come. It's not something that's going to be taken away from them. Something that will go wrong or fall apart. God will be their stronghold and their refuge forever. God's place. It's it's striking, I think, in verse 18, you've got glorious riches spoken of. Prosperity, abundance, blessing, the good land. And so we've come full circle because chapter one is horrible, isn't it? The locusts had destroyed it, the vineyards had gone, the wine had disappeared, the cattle were moaning because their pastures had gone. Now we have wine and milk in abundance. A picture of blessing, of being with God. And you've got water as well. Drought was common. Water was scarce, but not in this new place. Again, verse 18, you've got water coming out of the temple. Blessing, I think, coming from God, from his holy place. Think ahead to the end of Revelation, to the holy city, where you've got, well, chapter 22, we read it, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So his places of abundance, plenty, blessing, safety, security, rest. And a contrast to Egypt and Edom. Why them, we say, in verse 19, what have they done? Well, Egypt, you might know, is a place of, of slavery. We looked at it before Christmas. It bore the brunt of the Lord's judgment as they captured his people and as he judged them at the Passover as as he rescued his people from Egypt. Edom, they're also renowned because they blocked the Lord's people on the way to the Promised Land. They wouldn't let them through. Again and again and again, they were battling against the Lord's people. Battling against God, therefore, because he's jealous. So God's place, never to be attacked. Safe from God's enemies, abundant, secure, at rest. And what about God's blessing, his, his presence among them? What about that? Remember back in 2 verse 17 last week, we saw that, that the nations might have mocked. God's people were the potential Uh, scorn of their neighbours why should they say among the peoples where is their God well here's the answer and everyone sees it you cannot miss it 3 verse 17 then you will know that I the Lord your God dwell in Zion my holy hill Jerusalem will be holy never again will foreigners invade her 
And in fact, the words left ringing in our ears at the end of Joel, in verse 21, the Lord dwells in Zion. Ringing in our ears, ringing in the ears of persecuted brothers and sisters all round the world today, the Lord dwells in Zion. For us, that's the heavenly Jerusalem to come. That's restoration complete. That's perfect justice. That's him in the throne room and everyone knows it. And you can't miss it. So if you're a Christian and you struggle for being a Christian, whether you're in in Nigeria or Egypt or Blackbird Lees or Oxford, then Joel says, please press on. Press on as a Christian. Press on because a day is coming when the Lord will come and act in justice. He's not forgotten you. He will come and you will see that he is a jealous God. And you'll see that he's a just God. And you'll see that he's a generous God. And no one will miss it. Everyone will see that the Lord dwells in Zion. Let's pray.